0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Uh, Caroline, quick question for you. Mm -hmm. Have you ever played matchmaker with... Friends or acquaintances or
1: family members or just two people on the street, (laughs) whomever. (laughs) You people on the bus stop, you look attractive. Why don't you get together? No, I don't think I have. No? I don't know. I feel like I would not be good at it now i i know
0: that you were joking about two people on the street or on the bus uh-huh. uh but actually in fact one day on my way home from work i was riding the train and an older gentleman tried to play matchmaker with me and a and a strange man and That's by strange awkward. i mean like a stranger i didn't know he he had a nice face <laughs> uh but it was one of the most awkward instances this older guy was like you two belong together i can see it we maybe both, he could see something you couldn't i know we both looked up from our from our books our yeah. respective publications and and then i ran out once we got to my stop cuz i'm you know
1: What are you gonna do at that point? I don't know, blush probably is what I would have done. Actually that did, that same thing happened to me. I was in England and I was at a cafe and I was reading a book and like drinking my coffee and, uh, this waitress comes over, she's like, oh, are you American? Of course she obviously had a British accent, but I'm not even gonna do it. Like, hello! (laughs) Hello! Hello, governor! Are you American? (laughs) See, there you go! (laughs) And uh, I was like, yeah, mm mhm. Well, you know, he over there, that guy, that, he's American too! And we both, it was the same thing, we both look up from our books and we're like, we both have this look on our face like, oh God, please stop. And she's like, you got you really, do you know him? You know, he's American. Do you know him? He's also American. You guys should really know each other. You should really sit together. And we just look at each other and just go back to our books.
0: And now he's your boyfriend. No? Nope. Oh. Nope. Well, clearly these uh, random folks that we've run into in our lives, not good matchmakers. No. I, uh, I've never played matchmaker with friends that I can think of, really. I kind of avoid it. I feel like no. I, w- I wouldn't be that great. And then if it doesn't work
1: out, it's
0: egg on your face.
1: Well, it's egg on your face, but also you might be putting a wrench into your friend group. Right. So, But if
0: I was to tell you that you could be paid thousands of dollars to potentially match people up. Would you think I could twice be, about
1: it? I could be inspired. Okay.
0: Well, that's this is a very long way of telling our <laughs> listeners that we're talking about matchmakers today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my mind, when I think of matchmaker, the first thing I think of is the song from Fiddler on the Roof that goes a little something like, I won't sing it for you. <laughs> I was I, I was so ready. Your eyes beamed there for a moment. <laughs> nope, I'm not gonna sing it today because I'm recovering from a cold. Sure, so I don't think sure you are. <laughs> and that's my excuse. Um but we're talking more in the podcast about professional matchmakers because it seems like I don't know if we have many reality TV fans out there, but there was a certain show on a certain network by the certain name of Millionaire Matchmaker. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I love it. Once that came out, every it was Matchmakers everywhere.
1: Yeah, I love I love the show. I, I the only reason I can't watch it is cuz there's too many commercials, but I do love it. And she sets up some pretty nasty people. I don't mean like the, the couple is nasty. I mean like she sets people up with some nasty people. Like some of her millionaires are really big jerks. But again, as we'll get to in the podcast, sometimes
0: it's not, you know, part of the matchmaking process is finding the diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, a lot of times with these, these smarmier, Men who she might, uh, Patty Singer, the millionaire matchmaker, might, uh, encounter. Really what they need is some coaching and she'll, you know, they'll usually go through some kind of, at least a minimal metamorphosis. Yeah. Of realizing that, you know, maybe,
1: well. The flock in, of seagulls haircut is over, sir. <laughs>
0: yeah. Let's
1: <Just> move on. <laughs> so.
0: Before we get too much into our, into our secret and now not so secret love of a uh, millionaire matchmaker, guilty pleasure, <laughs> let's talk about the matchmaking industry. Because yes, I did not realize this, but in the United States, matchmaking is a lucrative Industry.
1: Yeah, uh, like a $250 million industry. Uh, this is according to the Matchmaking Institute. Who knew there was such a thing? Um, but according to them, there's 1,500 matchmaking professionals in the U.S. Well, that was in 2006, so gosh, gee golly, there's probably a whole lot more now. There are now. probably more, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting that the industry within and without is dominated by women, both the matchmakers themselves and the clients. Which used to not be the case on the client side. Mm-hmm. Um, actually,
0: the reason why we ended up doing this matchmaking episode was because of an article that was published a couple weeks ago on the Daily Beast talking about this new trend in the matchmaking industry where they're catering to wealthy Middle aged and older women, because it used to be that matchmaker professional matchmakers, I should say, catered specifically to wealthy dudes.
1: Right. But, you know, as demographics have changed uh, and more women are in higher power, higher power jobs, whatever, it, it becomes harder to meet that magical someone, apparently, particularly if you're in New York. Yes. like that kept coming up over and over again. That people in New York are spending a lot of money finding the right person. And you know what? Side note, like totally derailing. I have talked to friends who have lived in New York and are like, "It's really hard to find a date, even for you know, like average people." Not so. Imagine what it's like if you're, you know, Martha Stewart or somebody. Well, don't they
0: call it the loneliest city in the world? You're just surrounded by people. I will now, but no one to date. I guess I' uh, will. but speaking of New York, it is the number one center for uh, matchmaking uh, the matchmaking industry, this most lucrative market, followed by Los Angeles, Chicago, and coming in at number four, representing our our town in which we live, mm-hmm. Atlanta. Hot mm-hmm. not so hot. After Apparently health. the
1: players are not playing. Or maybe <laughs>
0: the players are playing too much. The players just need some help playing. <laughs> um And then finally, at number five, this is coming from, again, the Matchmaking Institute, which was the best source for industry data, because it is a very niche industry, as you can imagine. Uh, but number five, Minneapolis-St. Paul.
1: Yeah, all right. Maybe because it's cold. I wonder if that has anything to do with big cities. People stick to their own and don't really maybe branch out from their groups and get to know new people.
0: Yeah, you're in uh you're in a large urban area that's dominated by, you know, professionals who are working constantly, especially when you climb up into the into the higher ranks. The reason why professional matchmakers tend to cater to wealthier clientele is because they don't have time to go you know, on to to mixers or do speed dating or mm-hmm. try to go on date after date hoping to find someone who's a match They need someone to kind of do that for them. And um matchmakers today also attribute the popularity of online dating to the uh, lucrative industry that they're now in. Like a lot of people have turned from online dating, they're saying, to professional matchmakers because of horror stories. Yeah,
1: people are having all this bad luck in online dating. And so they don't want to leave things quite as up to chance as you tend to do with online dating, because even though you can go on these sites and like have percentages that match you, they don't take into account really how you are with people. So maybe there's the hope that with a matchmaker, someone who meets you in person meets the other person, they can kind of get a better feel for who you would be better with.
0: Right. Uh, And speaking of which, why don't we walk through the matchmaking process? And this is coming from uh, articles in the New York Times Magazine and New York Times profiling, in particular, Manhattan's most famous matchmaker, a lady named Janice Spindle, who's
1: created a matchmaking empire. She sounds like a fairy godmother. Janice Spindle.
0: Uh, Yeah, Spindle will actually go out and actively recruit clients. She will and she she's one of those matchmakers who uh, caters specifically to men. And so she will in airports, in restaurants, at parties, walk up to attractive men not wearing wedding rings who are probably in suits, meaning they've got the cash to spend on a matchmaker. And uh she she'll just go up and say, "Hey, hey fella, let me let me I, find you love. I'm
1: not propositioning you. <laughs> yeah, no, really, I have a business deal. Yeah,
0: she has to clarify that because they'll they'll look confused at first. Because she'll start talking about dating and romance, and then notice that she has a wedding band on. And she has to be like, no, no, no. I want to help you find someone else. Right. Not me.
1: Well, there is that, that high level matchmaking stuff, but sometimes they do it, they attract clients through ads or online searches or just word of mouth, kind of whatever gets their message out there. And there's usually some kind of initial consultation, just like you want when you get a fancy haircut, uh, just to find out what the people are looking for, um, if, if it goes forward, if things are positive, their membership dues exchanged, uh, maybe dates, are culled from some bank of eligible young men and women.
0: Yeah, and speaking of the membership fee, here's the thing about professional matchmakers... They cost a lot more than online dating will probably cost you. Mm-hmm. Um, to get into the Millionaire Matchmaker Club, and this is from the Wall Street Journal. I'm not just quoting <laughs> reality television. Uh, they interviewed Patty Singer about her empire that she has built. Um, uh, uh, the base membership fee to get into the Millionaire Matchmakers Club costs $40,000 a year. Um but for a little more of a representative price point for the industry wide. Um a third of matchmaker clients spend between 3,000 and 5,000 per year on dating services.
1: That's still a lot. That's crazy. And I would just like to point something out that that seems a little insane to me. Yes, you might spend $40,000 with Patty Sanger, but According, according to Ms. Sanger, you might spend 200 grand on quote, more personalized services and individualized attention. And so I'm just, I'm just wondering, what, what does that mean for the attention you're getting for 40 grand? it's a good question yeah like what sets you apart on the 40 grand level on the 200 grand level like I would want 40 grand to be pretty personal
0: maybe 200 grand guarantees you a cameo
1: on, <laughs> on the, the show television yeah maybe that pays all the insurance costs for the show
0: um the average professional matchmaker in New York City will earn not too bad of a living 78 grand per year although I guess in Manhattan terms I don't New York folks, I mean, that sounds like a lot of money down here in Atlanta, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps that is, I mean, it's not, obviously matchmakers, what I'm trying to say, make a lot less than their clients still.
1: Yeah, well, Kristen mentioned that Daily Beast article a little bit ago, and Paula Froelich, who's the writer, actually called Stanger cantankerous. In it, and she differentiates between Stanger, Miss Patty Stanger, and these this quote unquote new breed of high-end matchmakers who run background checks on clients and dates, and only actually accept about twenty-five percent of potential clients. There, it's it's very exclusive. Yeah, because you want to make
0: sure that you're setting someone up with a quality person who, who matches them on different levels, who might not be, you know, someone who could be married or maybe they don't have the best of intentions for wanting to court a very wealthy person. Um, so getting back into the process, once they've plunked down their money, uh, what happens next? Cause it's actually, it's a grooming process. A lot of times when you pay for a membership, it's a year long process that you go through. Unless you're insanely lucky and on your first date, it's magic and then
1: wedding bells with chime. Yeah, and then you can be on a Patty Sanger, uh, special. Perhaps. Matchmaker special.
0: Yes. But a lot of times, um the matchmaker doubles as a sort of dating coach um, you might end up getting set up with a an image consultant if say you do have a flock of seagulls haircut yeah don't
1: don't be the guy who fights it don't fight the makeover get rid of the pleated pants you know some pe- some men look nice in pleated pants
0: I don't know, sometimes the makeovers go overboard. That I'm just saying. <laughs> but uh but yeah, because but even sometimes they will recommend cosmetic surgery. Yeah, that's but other like times, that, yeah. other times it's a little bit of uh, physical training, some dieting. You might even do uh, an at-home makeover if you have kind of a, a scary <laughs> bachelor pad that is not very um conducive to um, coupling. Um and then they also want to get more information on things like your family background, education, hobbies, interests, religious background, personal values and morals. If you want kids, that's important, you mm-hmm. know, uh, previous relationships and also relationship deal breakers. Yeah. Matchmakers get pretty quick into digging into not so much your future, but first, let's figure out your past and how you got here. Mm hmm. So kind of in a way, it's like the matchmaker is dating the client.
1: Yeah, well it's kind of when you hear about all the stuff they have to do, it's no wonder they charge so much money. Cause they're basically like, if they're, if they're taking you, if they're doing the, the Patty Sanger and they're taking you into a room of potential dates, they're basically your escort. You know, they're your party planner. Not, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to handle. They're, they're kind of your personal consultant for quite a while. And obviously different kinds of matchmakers will
0: provide different kinds of services. Some of which will be a little more of that one-on-one intensive. Others will be just to literally set you up on -on one-on-one dates with people rather than escorting you to parties or to, um, almost like date auditions that you might see on reality television shows.
1: Yeah, but one, uh, one type of matchmaking we haven't talked about yet is the traditional kind.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the traditional matchmaking because uh, I mentioned that one of the first things a matchmaker will find out about with a client are cultural and religious backgrounds. And sometimes they will refer that client to another matchmaking service if they are specifically, say, looking for an Orthodox Jewish wife or, you know, some kind of they're looking for a person to fit a specific um ethnic or religious or cultural model.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting reading about all these different cultural, uh, these matchmaking traditions, because I had no idea. I kind of had an idea about uh, Hindu traditions, just because my friend Deepa just got married. She did not uh, she had a traditional Indian ceremony, but she wasn't it wasn't an arranged marriage, as you might think of a traditional Hindu ceremony. So I kind of knew about that, and it was a beautiful wedding and all that stuff, and I wore sorry; and it was great. Um, but yeah, so speaking of Hindu tra- tradition, marriage is a cornerstone of Hindu faith, and the family typically functions as the matchmaker. And in India in particular... This whole matchmaking thing has existed since the fourth century. Yeah, we've done an episode, a
0: podcast a while ago on arranged marriages. And while this idea of paying someone, paying a professional matchmaker, might seem kind of novel by our westernized standards, and even the idea of arranged marriage might seem kind of strange. In fact, around the world, 60% of marriages are arranged, and while you might not have someone like a Patty Singer coming in, obviously, and, uh, saying what's what, uh, you, you'll still have either people, designated people in your community or family members who, uh, serve as the matchmakers. And a lot of times it does focus around religious elements. You mentioned Hinduism, and then it also comes up, of course, with Orthodox Judaism.
1: Right, yeah. Fathers uh, are traditionally selecting the grooms, and they might request assistance from a, oh, I hope I get this right, uh, shotgun. Shachan. Oh, hey! Hey! I looked up my Yiddish pronunciations. Snap. I literally just snapped at her, because I am so impressed. Um, I looked up pronunciations, and I was like, oh, gosh, going blind into this. Um, So, yeah, and matchmakers do typically team up with rabbis to help pair up couples. And while the Torah dictates that these fancy individuals be paid, Kristen? Shahans, Thank you. Uh, some of the Jewish matchmakers refuse payment, saying that really it's their divine calling and that they are meant to do this.
0: Yeah, and a uh, one little language lesson, um, especially because we did mention Fiddler on the Roof, uh, and the matchmaker's character in Fiddler on the Roof, for anyone who's not familiar with this, her name is Yenta. And a lot of times people will use the word Yenta interchangeably with matchmaker. But in fact, that is incorrect. The Yiddish word yenta merely refers to an older woman who likes to gossip. Whereas if you're talking about a matchmaker, the correct word is shahan for a man and shahanet for a woman. And Any Yiddish-speaking listeners out there, I hope that I'm doing that. Yeah,
1: just Uh, feel free to record yourself saying it and sending it to us. (laughs) Yes. we uh, Yeah. Um, Well, there's also the Muslim tradition where aunties and other family members find potential mates in their social networks. Um, Chaperone meetings uh, are typical, but key both parties are allowed to give the thumbs down in accordance with the Quran and this is because uh, a story in the Quran showed that Muhammad actually did spare a young woman from compulsory marriage so just because maybe your auntie set you up with the boy down the street doesn't mean you have to give it a thumbs up right uh, but and it's i don't know it's
0: it's interesting to see how with all of these major religions obviously marriage plays such a central role in each of them. And this matchmaking tradition in their own different ways has gone back and then like stretches back in all of the their respective religious texts as well. Um, and so why we find it, I don't know, strange at all that people might look to an outside party to for help with finding their partner. Well
1: it feels it feels to me, I mean, as someone who that's definitely alien to my culture and the way that I was raised, like that's just seems scary. You know, like, oh my God, you're gonna bring in who for me to marry? Like who's to say I'm even gonna like this person? But statistically, arranged marriages last longer. That's true. And then for love marriages. Right. The it's between uh, 5 and
0: 7% of arranged marriages will end in divorce, but you also have to take into account uh, cultural traditions and legalities yeah. that might strongly discourage or prevent you from dissolving a marriage. But there, anecdotally though, if you read about, um, arranged couples today, and we talk about this again in the, uh, podcast that we did a while ago on arranged marriages, they, you know, there isn't an expectation of being madly in love when you're at the altar, but that a love will develop. You know, it's more of like a, a kindred, intimacy rather than this passionate love that we that we think about and that whole notion of love marriage as we've talked about before in the podcast um, referencing uh, marriage a history by Stephanie Kuntz which is a great book if you ever want to check it out um, she talks about how the concept of marrying for love is so new comparatively mm-hmm. in our history it only came about in the West starting in the 1700s
1: yeah well, if you think about it too, uh, with arranged marriages and and matchmakers and everything, they're they're not just willy nilly necessi- Well, ideally, they're not willy nilly just picking somebody for you. They are looking at your background, your family, your interests, you know, your religious beliefs and all that, and finding someone who lines up with that. And uh, Reva Seth, who's the author of the book First Comes Marriage, interviewed more than three hundred women in arranged marriages and found that families play a huge role in matchmaking and. And the marriage. And he said that it's not just about the two of you. And I think that over the long term, that takes a lot of pressure off the relationship.
0: Yeah. And um, scientific research would also back up this common thread among most matchmakers, whether it's a totally secular matchmaker who is making a lots of money in Manhattan <laughs> or elsewhere, um, or, you know, these matchmakers in um, different societies around the world. It's. It always goes. A good match always goes back to that common background. Where did you grow up? What is your religion? What was your family like? What's your education level? Those basic kind of things that seem incredibly unromantic. But if we're thinking about whether or not matchmakers are successful, or if matchmaking really works, um, if we look into our evolutionary past. I mean human animals get together based on a thing called assortative mating which essentially means like pairs up with like.
1: Yeah, and this is um this isn't the spark. Yeah, this is the foundation basically. The the similarities you have, the the way that you're going to go forward with the same values and when all you are is caught up in the spark maybe or the sexual attraction of a relationship you might miss the fact that the relationship you're in doesn't have a true foundation.
0: Yeah, um, there was a study published in 2008 in the Journal of Evolutionary Psychology that talked to participants about their ideal partner and whether or not they were looking for qualities that were similar to, to them or complimentary and by and large participants said that they wanted someone who was a similar personality and they had, you know, you've got, people often have their lists of what Mr. and Ms. Wright looks like Mm -hmm. and so they told the facilitators, you know, these lists of ideal traits but when it came down to the actual type of person that they were looking for, it was more of a complimentary partner than someone who was like them. And so the researchers are thinking with this, maybe we aren't so good at knowing what we really need.
1: Yeah. yeah I don't know. Maybe we aren't. My mother would say I'm not good at knowing what I need.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but But then again, though, your mother, while she might be able to, on paper... Okay, point out all of those complementary traits, perhaps. Mm -hmm. That would work best for you. A 2012 analysis of online matchmaking that was published in the journal Psychological Science would say, you know what, your mom might be able to pick someone good on paper, but she's not going to be able to find the spark. Yeah. Which, in academic parlance, in the words of this 2012 study, it's referred to as relationship Aptitude. Yeah, it's
1: how you are with other people. Yeah. And not even necessarily how you are with, like, the two of us together, but how you just are with people. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that Kristen Conger relates to people means that she, <laughs> <laughs> she just made a face, that's why I'm laughing, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not having a problem. Um, means that she would be good with, you know, person X over person Y. Mm-hmm. Am I am I kind of hitting it there? Yeah, I mean I think that's
0: like uh you know a sort of mating when we think about that uh look for someone if you want a good foundation look for someone who is kind of from the same place that you are in yeah. or have been. That sounds really dreary and not so exciting, but you have to put on top of that relationship aptitude mm-hmm. that would push a friendship into a more romantic relationship.
1: Yeah, and and uh, it's defined, you know, just to give you a better idea, it's the constellation of traits, preferences and personal history that makes a person more likely to have good relationships in general. And supposedly these professional matchmakers
0: are not only good at pairing up people on paper, but they supposedly have some kind of sixth sense for keying in on people's relationship aptitude and going that way perhaps after some coaching and grooming yeah no hot tub on the first date that's right patty singer would say no sex before monogamy but patty singer also has lots of uh, very reductive uh, romantic advice that is yeah that says that men only like boobs and things
1: Hmm. yeah well we won't go there yeah this time <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> dun, dun, <duh. laughs> so there you have it. Uh,
0: matchmaking, it has happened. It's one of the. It's somewhat, I forget which article it was, but they uh, described matchmaking as women's second oldest profession. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, anyone who has played matchmaker, if you are a matchmaker who has been set up successfully, we want to hear your matchmaking stories. I mean, do you think that people should. You know, keep their nose out of other people's romantic business, or oh, are friends better at setting us up, or matchmakers perhaps better at setting us up than we might be?
1: And let's hear the stories about the really bad dates, the blind dates. <laughs> you want the, you want the <laughs> bad blind <laughs> I date want the stories. horror
0: stories. Well, lots of stories to come. I hope momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send those good, bad, ugly, romantic, and terrifying tales of dating and matchmaking. And in the meantime, we have a couple of emails here from our episode on gender and heroism. Okay, well, I've got an email here from Mary and she works with the EMS And she says the podcast got me thinking about our triage protocols. When resources are insufficient, we have to move on from some patients whose survivability is low and help where we can make the most difference. However, when faced with a child in peril, it's not uncommon for paramedics to work on a child with little chance of survival. Sometimes a situation which would result in an adult patient being classified as dead on arrival, when a child is in the same situation, EMS crews will transport. Once at the hospital, doctors. Doctors, surgeons, janitors, nurses, and file clerks will drop everything to see if there is anything they can do to help a child whose death is inevitable, sometimes resulting in the diminished quality of care to adult patients. Even with training and protocols, these situations are difficult to avoid, especially in smaller hospitals, just one of the many challenges of practicing emergency medicine. That's an interesting inside look. Onto ER situations. Thank you, Mary.
1: Okay, this is an email from Iskrin, uh, also on our heroism podcast. Uh, it starts, I'd like to congratulate you on covering more deep and complex issues such as heroism. I'd like to offer a point of view which you, along with the rest of society, didn't touch on. Let me paint you a picture. Imagine a curvy road and two cars driving on it. The first car, occupied by one man, misses a turn and crashes. The second car, occupied by a couple, sees the accident and pulls over. The husband from the second car manages to pull out the driver of the first car and he calls for help. While the ambulance arrives, the wife holds the injured man's hand and comforts him. Later on, the medics arrive and save the life of the driver. That's a pretty standard scenario, and more than likely the next day there will be an article in the local newspaper exalting the couple and the medics on duty. At this point, most people consider the case closed. However, it is not. A day or so after the accident, an engineer is dispatched to the crash site with the task of assessing the situation and coming up with a plan to prevent future accidents. Over the course of a few weeks or months, safety measures like fences, signs, etc. are built to prevent cars from going off the road. One can argue that the engineer's work has saved an infinitely greater number of lives than the married couple and the medics. And yet the local newspaper doesn't publish a follow-up article on the preventative measures taken. So here they are, the engineers, technicians, and scientists, the unsung heroes of our society. So thank you for that.
0: And thanks to everyone who's written in. MomStuff at Discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast, And guess what? We've got something new for you to do as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on Tumblr. So if you would like to, check out our blog over there. It's a lot of fun stuff. So join us, StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com is the URL. And, of course, if that's not enough for you, you can always head over to our home site. It's HowStuffWorks.com.